The greater the population of our friend group, Christian friend group, the more strength we have in surviving an attack from the enemy. Now, it's not anyone's fault if you don't go running for help. I can't sit a meal of food in front of you if you tell me you're hungry and make you eat it. But if you complain about being hungry after the meal is rotted and dried and gotten spoiled, that's not on me, that would be on you. God designed the church as a body for a reason. Every part serves a purpose and helps the other parts. Yes, a body can continue living even when it loses one part, but the absence of it can severely lessen the quality of life. As Pastor Mark continues our study of the book of Nehemiah in today's message, he reminds you of the importance of surrounding yourself with Christian friends and taking advantage of their help. You have to be intentional about reaching out and allowing them to help pull you through your struggles and temptations and make sure you're there when they need the same from you. Well, let's join Pastor Mark in the book of Nehemiah chapter 11 for today's edition of Come Alive. When you think about this account in chapter 11 of Nehemiah, his actions are, his goal is to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Although the city wall has been rebuilt at this point, we know it's good, it's strong, they're fortified, they can hide behind it, they have something that's there to help protect against the enemy. But a wall, as you and I know, just doesn't keep people out. Not by itself. It needs people to man the wall. In those days, and if you've ever watched any historical, uh, historically accurate movies, when somebody was besieging a castle or they came up on a wall, normally what would happen, the, the citizens of that place or the army that was standing on the wall, they would boil hot oil and they would dump it on the people that were trying to break through the gates. They would also throw rocks and heavy objects, and that was one of the ways that they would prevent people from trying to enter their city that wasn't welcome there. And it's not that they just said, well, you're, you're an unworthy character. It was the enemy that they were trying to keep out. So Nehemiah has this well-defined city, but without people. He doesn't have people there. So his solution was to draft families to move there. For a capital, well, capital must be inhabited since it's the heart of the nation. Chapter 10, as we looked at it last week, spoke of the spiritual revival that had taken place in Jerusalem, centering around and on renewing their vows to the Lord to keep his law and not to neglect his temple. And now in chapter 11, we see that the Jews are making sacrifices to make sure that the holy city is protected and populated. Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1 of chapter 11 says, Now the leaders of the people dwelt in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. A couple of things there that you'll notice if you're a note-taker, and you can highlight these things. 
But number one, for the leaders, there was no drawing of lots. The leaders, you don't see any of the leaders, and we're not going to see any of their names really mentioned. They didn't get the opportunity to draw lots. They, as leaders, would live in Jerusalem willingly. They would step up and lead by example. So in order to run the nation efficiently, it would need a central government and authority for the people to go to. The situation of Jerusalem was still very dangerous, being that they're uh, you know, they had an army, they needed to have an army, but being that the army of people of Israel would be leaving their posts on the wall that they had assumed during the construction phase of it and returning to their ancestral homes and land. So people would come from all over the place, they would camp out, they would help build. And so now it's all finished, it's complete, and now they're going home. So Jerusalem would have less people guarding the walls, but it would remain the main target for its enemies. And so sometimes you know, and I don't know if you do know this, but Satan always looks for a perfect time to attack. The enemies always look for a good time. So when you're vulnerable, when you're down, when the numbers aren't there, you know, you might have had a really great week and you had every day, you had a quiet time and you were praying and you, you did all this stuff, you know, and it's not the stuff and the actions that does anything, but it's your relationship to God. You had a good, good time with the Lord, but maybe... Maybe for some reason you just didn't do it all, and all of a sudden Satan says, oh, he's a little weak here in this area. You know, he was supposed to read about this temptation or that thing, and he's a little weak, so I'm going to go in there and I'm going to try. And and so sometimes the enemy waits. That's what the enemy does. He waits. They wait for the perfect opportunity to strike. And so here, if Jerusalem has less people guarding the walls, well, it could obviously, and if it will lose some of its guards, But like I said, it's not losing its enemies. So all those who stayed in Jerusalem were taking a risk in making their homes, their families, and even their very own lives a target for the enemy. Let me say this. Anytime you take a position of leadership, anytime, and I don't mean like high-end leadership, I mean just taking the lead, saying, hey, you know, I'll volunteer in the children's ministry, or I'll volunteer with the student ministry, or I'll I'll volunteer for ushers, or I'm going to, the one I find that happens a lot is somebody that steps up and says, hey, we want to do a men's retreat. That guy that always has that idea, say, okay, cool, that's on you. The Lord put that on your heart. Why don't you take over, come see me? Every time that happens, usually that guy gets attacked really hard, really fast. It's proof, it should be proof to us that Satan doesn't want that to happen, that Satan sees that this is an important thing that's going to happen in the life of this man and other men. And so he does his best to take you out. And pretty much probably the last couple times we've seen this, I've seen some of those guys get taken out. The Satan attacks their family. He attacks, starts attacking them, usually in the workplace, and then he goes for their family. And usually when that happens, that guy goes down. And it's a hard thing to happen. So anytime you take a position of leadership, anytime you step up to take a stand, anytime you want to lead or be head of something, what happens is you automatically take the responsibility to live in danger of attack from the enemy, more so than the rest of the people. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that just to tell you the truth. It's true. It's truly true. See, as a Christian leader, a dad, as, as the husbands are, and if you're a mom, you are also a leader, you put your house, your family, and your very life in danger from those attacks of Satan and the world that follows him. The, the posts of honor and the posts of danger, well, when you think about it, they're often one and the same. 
They're one and the same. The leaders had to set the example by choosing to willingly live in Jerusalem. But again, leaders live by example. We need to live by example. And so, you know, when we came out here to plant this church a while back, one of the first things somebody told me was, guard you and your wife jealously. The times that you have in your quiet times, guard those jealously. Because if not, Satan's going to get in between. And I can't tell you how often, how many times this happens. Every time prior to anything, if I'm going out of town to speak at a different church or a men's retreat or a men's conference, our household turns into chaos for whatever reason. There are attacks that come from every direction. So again, those posts of honor and those posts of danger are often one and the same. Those who will not live by example, let me say this, those who don't want to live by example have no right to expect or to ask others to do so. I can't tell you how often I've had people tell me stuff and and I look at that person and I was like, well, why is it okay for you to do it? Well, I'm not the leader of a church. I'm not a pastor. I'm not this. First thing I always tell people is, I'm just like you. I'm a Christian first, not a pastor first. I'm a Christian first. I'm a Christian first, a husband, a father. Number four on that list is pastor. And it's just a title. It's a servant position. So you might ask, well, what's the big deal about this repopulation of the city? What's the big deal? Well, here's, here's the big deal. It says, Nehemiah tells us he also knew the bigger picture. He knew the bigger the population of Jerusalem, the greater the resources for defense and strength in battle. That's the same thing with you and I. The greater the population of our friend group, Christian friend group, the more strength we have in surviving an attack from the enemy. Now, it's not anyone's fault if you don't go running for help. I can't sit a meal of food in front of you if you tell me you're hungry and make you eat it. But if you complain about being hungry after the meal is rotted and dried and gotten spoiled, that's not on me. That would be on you. So Nehemiah, he didn't rebuild the walls just to see some conquering you know, army come and break them down again. The great principle for you and I to remember in reading this Old Testament and looking at these books through here is that what happens to Israel, what happens in these pages of the Old Testament on a physical level level pictures what's happening to you and I on a spiritual level as Christians. See, if we read with that principle in mind as we go through our Bible studies, our daily studies, and hopefully that's what you're doing day by day, If we go through that within our mind as we have our quiet time, what is happening to us on that spiritual level, how is it working on the physical level for these guys, and how do I apply that? We read with that principle in mind. It becomes an amazing book of instruction. It shows you and I how to truly live and walk in our day-to-day lives. God, too, is a builder. God is a builder. If you think about what the New Testament tells us, It's that he's building a city, one which has inhabitants. It's called the New Jerusalem. So you and I can take this here, the old Jerusalem, being rebuilt, the walls. We can apply it to the New Jerusalem that will happen one day soon. But it's the building right now. We're in the middle of the building process as Christians. And so it's not like the old one made of bricks and mortar, but a new city built of spiritual stones. Who's the church? We are. We are the church. Each of you are a brick. Each of you is a stone. Some of you are doorways. Some of you are windows. Some of you are pillars. You hold it up. Some of you are pillars also. Caterpillars, you 
come in, you come out. You slither in, you slither out, right? Uh, Don't be a caterpillar. Uh, Be a pillar that holds it up. Be one of those guys. So, you know, the Bible tells us we're living stones. First Peter, I think it's First uh, Peter 2, 5, 2, 6, something, tells us that we are living stones. We are living bricks, if you want to put it that way. And so in the New Testament, it, see, it's intended to be inhabited by redeemed people. That's what the church is all about. And so if you draw that parallel, if you look at it here in in, in Nehemiah in the Old Testament, when you see that you draw those parallels, you'll begin to see some of the teachings of this passage in Nehemiah. It'll really begin to hit home. So again, verse 1 says, the rest cast lots, one out of ten to dwell in the city, the holy city. So the rest of the people had to cast lots. Sadly, it seems that there were not enough volunteers which is sad. There's not enough volunteers to follow in the example of the leaders. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah had to, what he had to do is he had to institute a draft based on a lottery system. Perhaps the people were unwilling to live in Jerusalem for whatever reason. Maybe they were afraid of the danger. Uh, I've talked to many people before in my life and said, hey, you know, have you ever thought about going on a mission trip? It sounds like you're mission-minded. You're praying for all these. Oh yeah, but you know, I'm just too scared to leave. What if something happens? What if I die over there? I'm like, do you do you wake up every morning wondering what if I die on the way to work? No, no. There, the, I'm that guy that really firmly believes in the where the Bible says there's a day and a time appointed for every man. Whether you're in some third world country or you're sitting in your living room, it's that day. Whatever day that is, it's going to be that day. I would rather be the guy that dies doing something that's trying to bring more people into the kingdom than trying to figure out, you know, my next cup of coffee. So perhaps the people were unwilling to live in Jerusalem because they were afraid of the danger. There's danger. Like I said earlier, there's a danger of an attack just to be a volunteer in a church. Or maybe the lack of ability, maybe they were afraid of uh, the lack of ability to acquire more wealth. All of those things which are temptations to you and I when we're called to sacrifice for the glory of God. In this, we see two really important concepts. First, number one, the casting of lots. Second, self-sacrifice. Casting of lots in the Old Testament, just to let you know what it was, it was a way to find out what God's will was. So it's kind of like sort of tossing a, tossing a dice, not a dice, a die. Tossing a die to see who would be chosen to stay in Jerusalem. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. Casting lots causes contentions to cease. And what happens, it keeps the mighty apart. Proverbs 18.18 tells us that. So out of every ten people living in the suburbs, you know, think about that. One out of every ten living in the suburbs was to move to Jerusalem if the number fell on them. So he went through the towns, he numbered the people, counting them off by tens, and then they threw a die, and with ten numbers on it, whatever number came up, that man with that number was expected to move him and his family to Jerusalem. But there's something I find very, very interesting here, and if you read this very carefully, or if you don't, you'll miss it. It's apparent that when a man was chosen to move into Jerusalem, he was permitted to decline if he wanted to. You know, that's how God is. God gave his son, right, as a ransom for all. Uh, But if you choose to decline that, that's okay. That's totally cool. God says, hey, I'm not going to force you into the kingdom. 
If you want to come in, that's cool. See, a lot of people just assume, well, I live in America and I go to church, so I'm a Christian. Man, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Just because I go to McDonald's doesn't make me a Big Mac, nor does it make me an employee of McDonald's. Just because I walk into that place makes me nothing associated with McDonald's. It's the same thing with Christianity. The way you become a Christian is you become born again. You repent of your sins. You turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I'm done ruling and reigning my own life. I want you to take over and lead and I'll follow. Self-sacrifice. So he goes through. But there's something, again, very interesting when you look at this. They're able to decline, and that's because God wanted volunteers for this. So a man could be chosen but could decide against moving. Then the lot would be cast again, and another name would be chosen. Sooner or later, someone would be found who kind of consented freely to go. And according to the account, those who chose to go were commended by the people. Uh, The people were like, yes, they honored them because they volunteered to do what God had called them to do. See, that's, that's the whole thing here is that you and I get an opportunity to do what God calls us to do. There's nothing more freeing, nothing that feels better than being obedient to what the Lord calls you to do. In the beginning, it's kind of like, really, seriously, do I have to do that? And then once the task is done, you're just like, man, that's, that's awesome. I want to do it again. So they honored them because they volunteered to do what God had called them to do. So the application for you and I is pretty obvious. It's the same principle that applies in the church today. According to the New Testament, we are all called into the ministry. Ministry, I was telling someone today, uh, ministry means servant. Servant means slave. So we're all called. And one word that a slave cannot say, should not say is no. But the Lord says, I'm a gentleman and I'll give you opportunity. If you want to decline, I'll honor that decline. So the ministry belongs to the saints, the church, And we know who the church is. It's us. We are the church. The minute you become a Christian, you're moved into God's new Jerusalem. So you're asked to take up labor there to do work according to the spiritual gift that God has given you, whatever that gift is. We're all gifted differently. Some of us know how to build. Some of us know how to play instruments. Some of us know how to do book work. Some of us know how to draw and create art, dance, and Whatever. And so here's the deal, though. You must volunteer to do it. No one's going to force you to do it. See, God doesn't force his people to do what they're asked to do. He gave us all spiritual gifts, but he doesn't force us to use them. And so look here. If you look in in, in chapter 11, and it says willing, the word 11 um, um, in chapter 11 in verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who were willingly who willingly offered themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. It's very important that we note that word. If you're a highlighter, highlight it, whatever. There are many times God calls us to do things that we don't want to do or things that we think we might not like, even things that might be outright dangerous. The key, though, is to be willing. If you're willing to accept the callings of God, then that's enough. I can tell you there have been times in my life where I've been called to do dangerous stuff. Seriously dangerous stuff. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't, my first thought was like, well, I could lose my life. I was scared and I did it. And and I'll tell you what happened. The minute I stepped into that, God made a way. He he didn't tell me what he was going to do previously. He didn't tell me how he was going to, how the outcome would be. He just wanted to see if I was willing to step into that dangerous situation. 
And I did. And I got to see something that a lot of people don't get to see. I got to see God move and work in a miraculous way. And I can't tell you how many times I could sit up here probably for hours and tell you story after story after story, but we don't have that time. See, the key is to be willing. If you're willing to accept the callings of God, that's enough. Just be willing. And and just know he will provide a way. You might say, I don't see any way around this. And he's like, well, I'm not going to show you the way until you take that first step. So just be willing and God can change your heart. He can make that which was something you were just willing to surrender into that which was the complete and full desire of your heart to do. So yet if you want to be respected or honored and commended at last by the Lord himself and all his people, then the wise thing to really do is to volunteer, to perform the realm of ministry that he has opened up for you. I don't know what that is. I can't tell you what that is. But you know what it is. So for these guys to live in the holy city, it meant a life of sacrifice and a life of hardship. It also meant a life of holiness. For to live in the holy city, it came with the responsibility of living holy. That's for you and I. So one out of ten, the people had promised to tithe one-tenth of all their possessions. Here they make good on it by showing that they're willing even to tithe their very selves. What about you? That's the question. What about you? Remember, here's a verse I want you to jot down and maybe do some homework. Romans 12, and it's, in, it's a couple of verses. Try to memorize this. Romans 12, verses 1 through 3. See, in the New Testament, it's not just one out of ten that are called upon to offer their lives as a sacrifice for the glory of God. It's ten out of ten. It's every single one of us as Christians. All Christians are called to offer their bodies up to God as a living sacrifice. And this is only reasonable after all that Jesus has done for us, being that he offered up his body as the sacrifice for our sins. It's not that he says, you owe me, but in reality we do. But he's not going to hold that over your head. See, giving our bodies to God as a living sacrifice is kind of the secret of blessing and victory over our flesh in the Christian life. Many people don't know the blessing that is to walk in complete surrender to God as best as they possibly can. Yeah, are you going to fail? Sure you will. You're going to stumble. Sometimes you might even fall. But the key thing is, is to get back up, repent, and keep moving towards the Lord in your walk. So it's just as the Jews who did not live in Jerusalem ever experienced the blessing and honor that it was to live in the holy city. Sure, it's hard and even at times dangerous. Uh, because you make yourself a bigger target to the enemy. But the blessing is totally worth it. The freedom is worth it. And the only way to have victory over your flesh is to put it to death, to deny yourself and obey the Lord and offer yourself up to God as that living sacrifice. Every time you open the Bible, you witness God stepping into situations that seem difficult and even hopeless. He takes those times of insecurity and people of little courage and creates warriors, building good up where evil had taken control. In Nehemiah, you've been witnessing this same story as God has led his people to rebuild the wall around their city. God had promised to restore Israel, and he kept his word. If God did this for his people time and time again, doesn't it hold true that he'll do that for you as well? God still makes promises today, and he continues to fulfill them. We're so glad you joined us today for Come Alive. You can hear more teachings from Pastor Mark at ComeAliveRadio.com or join us next time to continue studying Nehemiah. Before we end our time with you, though, Tracy has a request to share. Here at Come Alive, we want to make sure we're following God, not what other people around us are saying. 
With everything we do, we want to honor our Creator and point people to salvation. That's where you come in. We'd appreciate your prayers for Pastor Mark and all of us here at Come Alive. Would you lift us up to the Lord each time you listen to our program? Thank you for interceding on our behalf. Would you consider donating to Come Alive too? Any amount is helpful, and you can easily donate by texting 77977. That's 77977. Thanks so much for prayerfully considering this, and thanks for tuning in for today's edition of Come Alive. Some slaves are what we want.